Well, when I was applying for uni in year 12 and I was thinking about going to uni, I discovered the course that I wanted to do had an incredibly low uh, entrance grade. Like the mark you needed to get into the, the course was incredibly low. Uh, nobody wanted to do the degree that I wanted to do. I wanted to do town planning. Uh, so the entry bar was, 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 like, was really low, like turn up and you get a go kind of low. <laughs> uh, so knowing me, knowing the situation that laid before me, mum and dad recognised that this was probably going to be an issue. Uh, they knew that it was probably going to be a challenge for my motivation in year 12. Uh, so because they loved me, they held out a promise to me. If I was able to overcome the temptation to bludge, or get distracted along the way, or get, um, get influenced by my friends and head off on the wrong track. Mum and Dad held out a promise to me uh, if I persevered and stuck with it until the end. If I overcame and I held in there, I would receive the promise. And that was motivation enough for me. And that's what we see here in our passage today in Revelation 2 and 3. It holds out a promise uh, to the followers of Jesus who overcome now, whilst in Revelation, Jesus is speaking to seven first-century churches in what is modern-day Turkey. We know where they are. It's in modern-day Turkey. The problem that these churches faced are the same challenges that churches have faced throughout history. Now, you're going to notice that seven appears all throughout Revelation. It's a number of completeness, of perfection, of wholeness. And so in addressing these seven churches, Jesus is addressing churches throughout all time and in all places in all history. So in that way, the message to these churches is a message into our situation here at MPC as well. And Jesus holds out that same promise to us if we are able to overcome as well. And so as we look at this part of the Bible today, we're asking the question, what does it actually mean to overcome? And what promise does Jesus hold out to those if we do overcome? Let's jump into Revelation and let's find out together. Uh, please have your Bibles open in front of you at Revelation uh, chapter 2. And the first church that Jesus addresses is the church in Ephesus. And he tells them for, them for them to overcome, it means they must remember their first love. They must go back to where it all started and rediscover their love for Jesus and for each other. And let's see that from the text from Revelation uh, chapter 2 verse 1. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, as we work through the message to these churches, uh, and for the, sake of, uh, for, the, for the sake of time, we're going to look at the first three here today. And this first point to the church of Ephesus is going to be a little bit longer, so stick with me. I think the payoff's going to be worth it. But the order of the churches, the seven churches, is a little bit like a sandwich. Uh, churches one and seven, they're similar. They're, they're like the bread right. Churches 2 and 6, they're kind of similar, the cheese or the lettuce, whatever you're into. And uh, churches 3, 4 and 5 in the middle, they're kind of like the meat, right? They're similar as well. So looking at the first three churches, we kind of get an overview of what's going on uh, for all of them. We read in verse 1 uh, that uh, this message is to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, each of the church's messages is to the angel of the church, who you can just think of as a representative of that particular church. But we need to know, and it's really important, that the message, that's, the message itself is to that particular church. And we see the messages from Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which Hamish told us last week represents the angels of the churches. And holding the stars in his right, hands, uh, right hand means that Jesus has authority over these angels. Now, this is Jesus' story and he is in control. We also see that Jesus walks among the lampstands. 
which again uh, we learnt last week from chapter 1, uh, the lampstands represent the churches themselves. The churches are lampstands because they are meant to shine the light of Jesus to the world. Now, in telling them that he walks amongst the lampstands and amongst the churches, Jesus wants them to know that he knows their circumstance, he knows what's going on in their lives, and he knows what's going on in the church in Ephesus. So he says in verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Ephesus was a, was a port city with lots of people and ideas coming and going. And it was home to massive temples for emperor worship and other sort of cult worship stuff. So the church in Ephesus had to work hard to hold on to the truth of God's word in the Bible. They had to work hard to hold off from these pressures. We read in verse 2 that they'd, they'd worked hard at this. They'd persevered. They would not tolerate false teachers and those teaching a false gospel or, or pushing emperor worship upon them. We get an example of this later on in verse 6 where it says they hate the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. The picture of this Ephesian church is one that they know their Bible well, they know their theology, and they know the gospel. And they can sniff out a fake a mile away. So this church is looking pretty good so far. Verse 3, they're sticking it out in Jesus' name, enduring the pressure to be like everyone else, and they're continuing on in their faith. But it seems like they may have got a little uh, too battle-hardened and jaded from fighting all these fights. Because in verse 4 it says, and Jesus says to them, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now whilst they're on about the Bible, they enjoyed good teaching, this church had lost their love for Jesus and their passion for the gospel. They'd grown apathetic in their love for God. Their love for God had run dry. They'd lost the sense of awe that they first had of what God had done for them in the Lord Jesus. They'd forgotten the beauty of the gospel, what God had saved them from and what he'd saved them to. Over the years, their relationship with God had grown stale and cold, which had led them to forget their first love. And because their love for God had faded, so had their love for each other. Their hearts are no longer in it. It's a really sad picture, isn't it? Now, this church is theologically rich, but it's lacking in love. And what's in their minds isn't making its way to their hearts and then out into their hands. So Jesus calls them to repent in verse 5 and do the things that they did at first. He's calling them for a radical redirection of their lives. He's calling them back to their first love, a love for Jesus. Unless they do this, Jesus says in verse 5, he will remove the lampstand, which means he will remove this church. Without a love for Jesus, this church, it ceases to be a church because it no longer shines the light of the gospel to the world. So it has its lampstand removed. Jesus takes this problem seriously. Now, knowing their circumstances, Jesus holds out a promise to the church in Ephesus if they can overcome. In verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, overcoming or being victorious, your Bible might say being victorious, uh, it's a big theme in Revelation. 
Uh, the Greek word for overcoming, it's the same word for victorious, right? Um, it carries with it the idea of someone uh, winning, or, sorry, overcoming an enemy in battle or being victorious in an, an athletic event, that sort of thing. And in Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus actually turns on its head what it means to overcome uh, from an earthly understanding to a heavenly one. Because when he says to those who overcome, he isn't talking about a military or a political or a sporting victory, but he's saying those who overcome have remained faithful to him. Now, in a sense, it is a battle, right? But it's an everyday battle to keep on living for Jesus, being faithful to him and sticking to his word. For the church in Ephesus, this meant they had to address their love for him. In overcoming, the call is to patiently endure and stick with Jesus, holding on to Jesus until the very end. So Jesus says in verse 7, If you stick with me, you will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Now, this is borrowing from imagery back in, uh, back in Genesis, back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and this tree is symbolic of, the, of eternal life. And so those who stick with Jesus will enjoy eternal life with God in paradise, in the new heaven and the new earth. But for this church to overcome, they must return to their first love for Jesus. Sadly, the picture of this church in Ephesus is like a marriage. It's like a marriage uh, that's lost its love. It started off great with all the warm and fuzzies. But the love has faded away and now they're just acting out of a sense of duty. Their first sense of love, of joyous, sincere love and passion, they had it first uh, it's gone. And now this church is just going through the motions. That's the picture of the Ephesian church. They've lost their first love, uh, their love for Jesus. So Jesus here is calling them back to it. And he holds out a promise to them if they can overcome. Ephesus was a church in a tough city. And they'd fought hard to hold on uh, to God's truth. But they'd lost their love for Jesus along the way. And I think of all the churches, the three churches that we're going to look at today, I think this is the greatest risk, of, uh, risk for each of us because it's speaking into something we're all susceptible to, and that's apathy. The church in Ephesus were on about good teaching. Uh, this church probably had great programs, they probably had great ministries, but they'd lost the main thing. They'd grown apathetic in their faith, time and their battles had made them weary. They'd lost their enthusiasm for the gospel that they once had. I wonder, is it clear what we love or, or who we love here at MPC? Do we wholeheartedly love the Lord Jesus? Are we holding on to him as our first love? Or have we grown cold and tired, weary and apathetic? Love is shown in how we act. So what have we done lately to show our love for the Lord Jesus? How have we served him and his people? Friends, these are good questions to ask ourselves this morning to, to check where our heart's at, to see where our love for the Lord Jesus is at. We have to understand this is a real risk for each of us. It's a real threat to us uh, to grow stale and cold in our love for the Lord Jesus. And the real danger is this doesn't happen as a conscious decision. It's not a choice we make, but it just slowly happens over time. Ironically, even as a Bible college student, I think it's this time of my life where I feel like I'm at the most risk 
of losing my love for the Lord Jesus. Uh, for us as a family, life's busy, uh, no busier than anybody else's, but keeping up regular Bible reading is really hard. But I know it's good for me. It's where I'm constantly reminded of God's love for me, what he's done for me through the Lord Jesus, uh, which warms my love for him. I also have a good friend I catch up with back home. Uh, he's in Townsville. We catch up on Zoom each week. Uh, we talk a bit of rubbish and we pray and, and, and we read the Bible together. And I'm part of a, a great Bible study. We meet at 6 a.m. on a Wednesday. It's, it's freezing at the moment at that time. Uh, but it's good to get, uh, get together uh, to encourage one another. And this group of men encourage me to keep growing in my love for the Lord Jesus. Friends, if you need to rekindle your love for God, like any relationship, we can't expect that to happen without investment and time spent. Good teaching isn't, isn't enough. We need to love Jesus. So time in the Bible and prayer is important for us. Dwelling on God and reminding ourselves of the gospel in what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus. Another way to rekindle your love could be to jump in on the Christianity Explored course or the uh, Need to Know course. These are both great places to start. But friends, however you go about it, return to your first love of the Lord Jesus. Now, the second church that Jesus addresses is a church in Smyrna. And for them to overcome, their situation is a bit different, but they must hold on to Jesus through the suffering that's to come. They must stick with Jesus through the tough times that are ahead. And from verse 9, Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in a synagogue of Satan. Now, Smyrna is only one of two churches uh, who receive only praise uh, from Jesus here. Uh, this church, they're a small church, they're a poor church, and they're going through a really rough time. But Jesus says, in a heavenly sense, that they are rich. Now, by telling them, telling them this, Jesus is directing their eyes heavenward, reminding them of what really matters, that they are spiritually rich in him. At the time this was written, the Jewish synagogue received an exemption from the Roman emperor, Empire rather, uh, to not participate in emperor worship, right? Uh, and so Christianity coming out of Judaism uh, received protection uh, as the Romans thought, hey, they're, they're just one of those guys. But what we think's happened here is that the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish synagogue was saying, actually, no, the Christians aren't part of us. And so the Romans are saying, well, then you've got to worship us. Uh, worship our God or other, or our emperor's God. And so when they refused, the Christians refused, this led to intense persecution and imprisonment. And so Jesus speaks into that in verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this reference to 10 days doesn't have to be a literal 10 days because uh, this little reference here is uh, back to Daniel in the Old Testament uh, where Daniel was pressured to compromise his faith uh, like the church in Smyrna are being pressured uh, here. But Jesus uh, doesn't say, uh, don't be afraid of what's coming your way because even though they may die an earthly death, you have been given the crown of life. The crown of life mentioned above uh, was given uh, to the triumphant athlete in an event. So it's not lost on these Christians that even though they may suffer, if they remain faithful to Jesus, they will triumph. Not in an earthly way, but in heavenly, in verse 10. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Jesus is saying again, hey guys, I know how this all ends. Those who stay faithful to me, even to the point of death, will not be hurt by the second death, uh, which is God's judgment. Smyrna will suffer in an earthly sense, but in a heavenly sense, they are victorious because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And so death is the last enemy for God's people. And ironically, death is the gateway into glory. Our death is, is the worst thing that we can suffer. But it's through death that we enter into eternal life and we share in the victory that Jesus has won on our behalf. Jesus is saying, I know how this ends. Stick with me. It's worth it. A guy named Polycarp understood this. Uh, Hamish mentioned him last week. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop uh, in Smyrna shortly after uh, this letter uh, to the church in Smyrna was written. Uh, history tells us that Polycarp was a disciple of uh, the same John who uh, wrote this part of the Bible. Oh, Jesus gave this and he penned this part of the Bible. And we actually know that Polycarp was killed by, uh, well, he was, he was burned to death, basically, and they speared him to death to finish him off uh, for refusing to give up on his faith. And the quote's up on the screen there. Uh, this is what Polycarp said as he was about to die. He said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Saviour? I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. And shortly after this, he, he died. We see here Polycarp is living out the words to the church in Smyrna. He was faithful to the point of death. But he received the crown of life because he overcame and he remained faithful to Jesus until the end. Now, for some of us, maybe most of us, I don't know if we can directly relate to the kind of persecution that this church was dealing with. But there are a couple of really helpful things that we can draw out from this part of the Bible. Now, firstly, it's an encouragement to know that, uh, like the church in Smyrna, even if we're materially poor in this life, we are spiritually rich. Our earthly situation doesn't reflect our heavenly reality. And secondly, Smyrna's experience reminds us that Jesus told us that we can suffer, uh, we can expect suffering and persecution. And it shouldn't surprise us. And like Polycarp said, it's an honour to be considered worthy to suffer in Jesus' name. But friends, even in our suffering, our hope isn't that the suffering and the persecution uh, would never happen. But our hope is knowing that Jesus has conquered death and that death isn't the end for us. Revelation's view from heaven reminds us that for us as faithful followers of Jesus, death isn't the last word for us. Uh, because Jesus has overcome death, we share in his victory. And so like Jesus, we too will one day be raised from the dead. Friends, our hope isn't tied to the removal of suffering or persecution. Our hope is tied to Jesus and his faithfulness to us. It's tied to knowing that God's in control and that Jesus has won the ultimate victory. Well, the last church we're going to look at this morning is the church in Pergamum, who Jesus tells that they can overcome, uh, they can overcome by not compromising on their faith not conceding their faith to the pressures of the world. We see that from verse 13. Jesus says, 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain, truth, uh, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Pergamum was a bit of a religious hub. There was an altar to Zeus. There was a massive temple uh, to Asclepius. And uh, temples to uh, the worship of the Roman emperor's God were everywhere, right? And so the reference in verse 13 to Satan's throne uh, is possibly a reference to one or all of these, these locations. Uh, these temples and these cults were all over this city, and it was in the face of this church. It was right in their face. And not conforming. Uh, to what is going on around them meant that this church faced a real threat of persecution and exclusion. But in verse 13, we read that they'd stayed faithful to Jesus uh, even when one of their fellow Christians had died for their faith. Uh, we see this person, Antipas, was killed for following Jesus, remaining faithful to the point of death. But even in the good stuff they're doing, they face another threat, but this time uh, the threat is from within. In verse 14, the mention of Balaam is linked back uh, to the Old Testament in Numbers where Israel fell into sexual immorality and idol worship. And it looks like the same thing is happening to some of God's people here in Pergamum. Some of the, church, uh, some of the people in this church were, were going to church on a Sunday and spending the rest of the week being enticed and seduced uh, into the world around them. They were getting drawn into the rest of what the rest of the world around them was doing. They were going to these temples and uh, you know, eating uh, food that had been sacrificed to idols. They were just getting absorbed by the world around them, doing what everyone else was doing. And their life on Sunday looked one, looked one way, but for the rest of the week it looked very much like the world around them. It's actually worth remembering too in, in verse 16 there, the Nicolaitans were the same group that the church in Ephesus hated who we heard that Jesus also hates. But people in this church were buying in to what they were selling. If something isn't done soon, this church will be compromised. The whole church will be compromised. So Jesus says in verse 16, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. We heard at the start the Ephesian church had dealt with dodgy teaching and dodgy practice as well. But part of the church in Pergamum had been suckered into the world around them. And they wanted to be like the rest of the world. Jesus takes it seriously. He says he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth if they don't deal with it. The sword is an image of, of judgment, of Jesus' judgment to them if they don't. And I think what Jesus is saying, he's saying here is that he wants them to know that his judgment is what matters. Jesus' words in 18, uh, verse 18, hold out hope to them if they do overcome and they do remain faithful to him. It says in verse 18, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give him a white stone with a new name on, written on it, not only to him who receives it. Again, Jesus is speaking to them knowing the outcome. Uh, those who overcome will receive hidden manna. Uh, which is a reminder of God's provision and points towards the heavenly banquet that awaits followers of Jesus. Uh, the meaning of the white stone with new names on it, it's a little bit debated, but within the, within the cultural context of the, of the first century, uh, they are generally associated with the giving of an admission ticket or even being used, the white stone being used to cast a not, uh, not guilty verdict. So we can understand the white stone to be an admission to God's heavenly kingdom, and we can see the not guilty verdict as God's not guilty judgment on us or those who remain faithful to Jesus and overcome. 
To remain faithful to Jesus means we can't compromise to the world around us. I feel uh, the pull of, of wanting to be the, like the rest of the world when I drop my daughter Amy off at kindy. Uh, when I drop her off, I pull into the car park and I see the line of cars lined up of all the other kindy parents and um, it's pretty impressive. It's full of BMWs, Mercedes, Land Rovers and there I am in my Mitsubishi Lancer. In my mind, I kind of pick the car that I want sometimes. It's not a, not a helpful practice. And I've probably chosen the wrong job if I want to be able to do that. But, um, but it does sucker me in and it, it makes me think, what if? This, the experience of this church in Pergamon, in Pergamon it's, it's not like, unlike ours. Our world is full of ideas and counterfeit little g-gods that sucker us in. Now, we might not worship at the temple of Asclepius, but we can be tempted to worship in the temple of our jobs, of Bunnings as we renovate our houses or, or whatever else consumes us. The temptation for us to be like the rest of the world is real. We come to church on a Sunday, but what are we worshipping the rest of the week? What temples are we going to? Whose acceptance are we chasing? I think at one level we all know that we do want to be accepted. We do want to blend in and fit in. We're tempted to fall in line like everyone else. But when we do this, we run the risk of compromising our faith. And so, friends, knowing that Jesus is holding out that white stone, uh, that promise of acceptance into the kingdom of God can help us to endure now. Our Revelation's view of heaven reminds us that we are on the right side of history because our Lord Jesus, our King Jesus, has won. And we have a far greater acceptance in our salvation through the work of the Lord Jesus. We shouldn't fear the judgment or the exclusion from the world because we've received our white stone of the not guilty judgment from the God of the universe, the God who holds history in his hands. The world may reject us, but if we remain faithful to him, he will remain faithful to us. We started off asking the question this morning, what does it mean to overcome? And what promise does Jesus hold out to those who do overcome? Well, when I was in year 12, my parents uh, held out the promise of a bluey-purple sort of colour uh, 1990 Mazda with pop-up headlights, if I ever came. And thank goodness God holds out, and the Lord Jesus holds out a promise far greater than that. Uh, to those who overcome as faithful followers of Jesus, Jesus holds out the promise of eternal life and the promise of sharing in Jesus' victory to those who persevere and stick with the Lord Jesus until the end. Friends, it can be tough, but it's worth it.